Hey everybody, it's Brian. Thanks for tuning in. If you're ready to buy or sell a home in Pierce, South King, or Snohomish County, please check out John Hurlbutt and his team over at Altitude Homes. John's an old friend and someone I know you can trust. He will also donate $500 to Ben's Fund for every closed transaction. I know how hard it is to find a real estate agent who has your best interests in mind. John can be that guy for you and benefit a great cause to boot. Check them out on the web at altitude-re.com hb. Again, altitude-re.com hb. Or give them a call at 253-222-2626. That's 253-222-2626. Go Hawks! Hey everybody, it is Brian Emhauser and we're live with Real Hawk Talk. Uh, we're on our bi-weekly schedule for uh, the off-season every Wednesday night at 7th... Sorry, that's not bi-weekly, folks. Bi-weekly would be every other Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. Pacific time. Glad to see you. Um, and while I've got you, if you haven't already, please go ahead and subscribe if you're listening to this. Go up to uh, SoundCloud, go to HawkBlogger, um, subscribe there. Um, go to YouTube.com slash HawkBlogger. That's why I do a live show, folks. Uh, YouTube.com slash HawkBlogger to subscribe there. Um, you'll get notified anytime we're going to go live because um, who knows? We might have something we just want to talk about, and uh, you won't know it's happening unless you're subscribed. So uh, I am Brian Emhauser. I am one of four um, and only uh, a small fraction of that. So. Uh, let me introduce the other guys. Uh, Nathan Ernst at Nathan E11 on Twitter. Welcome back, Nathan. Thanks for having me. Again. Uh, and then, <laughs> yeah, it, I, I want to say that you know I decided Nathan kind of inspired me. I wanted to to lose a little on the top, so I think we're brothers united there. Um, and then uh, Jeff uh, at Real Jeff Simmons. In the polar vortex, uh, how you doing, man? I'm cold, man. It's it's bad temperatures out here. Remember that Minnesota playoff game a couple yes. years ago? That's what it felt like to be outside today. <laughs> you can see me in my jacket. I'm still freezing in my apartment. I barely left the house. Did you try hitting anyone, like Camp Chancellor or anything like that in, in, in that uh, situation? I tried. It didn't go so well. <laughs> I'm, well. I'm built a little differently than Cam, right? I can't imagine. Like... We've all probably played snow or cold football, winter football, and uh, man, Oof, I don't know how they do it. Um, speaking of of cold, um, Evan, uh, how cold is it around you? It is so funny that you asked that. It is a chilly, chilly 63 degrees right now, and I saw a cloud for the first time in Phoenix today, ever since living here for the past month. First time I saw a cloud. And let me tell you, I had to put on pants, a sweatshirt, a long sleeve, a long sleeve shirt, and even turned on my fireplace briefly. So Jeff and I are equally struggling. You know, that sounds like hell to me. Like, it sounds, like it is literally. Hell. It is hell. <laughs> um and and Evan, like, 
I'm pretty sure you've been struggling without Matador nachos, but I'm kind of curious how much caloric balance has there been with an In-N-Out burger within like a walk of you? Is there a way to determine if my wife is watching, listening to this podcast right now? I think it's highly unlikely. Highly unlikely? Okay. I had four visits to In-N-Out in the past seven days. Oh, man. <laughs> Nathan is severely disappointed. Equals about double doubles. I'm impressed, I guess, more than anything. I don't, I don't know. That's a lot. Yeah. I got to get my ass back in gear before, you know, my wife comes into town tomorrow. Do so. you need counseling? Because that honestly sounds a little bit suicidal. Like you <laughs> want your life to end sooner. <laughs> this is a healthy situation though. So Okay. As long as it brings you joy, dude. Um, uh, and uh, we've got an awesome show. Um, we're going to be uh, talking about the Super Bowl because uh, shockingly, there seems to be quite a bit of uh, debate about who Seahawks fans should cheer for. And we're going to settle that debate here tonight uh, once and for all. Um, we will also talk about uh, a great article that Evan wrote uh, about the offseason, and there are a lot of tough choices for the Seahawks to make. He's going to walk us through a few of those. We'll, we'll talk about that. And um, we're also going to welcome a guest. Uh, Jason Jenks of The Athletic wrote a fantastic piece on uh, really the oral history of the NFC Championship victory over the Packers. Um, and so as soon as Jason joins on, um, we'll, we'll uh, tackle his topic. Uh, until then, uh, Jeff, where should we go? Uh, I think we should start with the Super Bowl. It's it is Super Bowl week. I think we were all hoping for Saints Chiefs. Is that is that correct? Anyone else think differently? I, I was going Rams Chief to recreate that Monday Night Football game, but Saints Chief would have been uh, just fine. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Anything that did involve Brady versus McVeigh and Goff, and having to hear about those two storylines all week. But if you follow Evan on Twitter, and I assume most of our listeners do. Evan believes, which I think is a very representative view of Seahawks Twitter, that you have to be out of your mind to cheer for the Rams. Seahawks may be biggest division rival right now as they're trying to reclaim the top spot. I know people hate Brady for obvious reasons. Brady's won so many times. They beat the Seahawks in the Super Bowl. Evan looks like his head's ready to pop off. So we'll start with you on this. It Why are you so insistent about this? It blows my mind. Remember like the Seahawks – 49ers rivalry, that brute rivalry had we had like three to four years ago. Like, it, it, I cannot fathom myself like rooting for the Niners in the Super Bowl. Like, remember when the Niners played the Ravens? You weren't rooting for the Niners. Like, just stop this whole. Okay, okay. You know, I'm gonna set my argument right here. Okay, number one, I hate the Patriots. Nobody on this podcast, nobody in Seahawks world doesn't hate the Patriots. I get it. We hate the Patriots. I hate Tom Brady. I hate the Patriots. Okay. That's established. I hate the Rams a lot more. They're a divisional rival. I don't root any success upon them ever. I hope Sean McVay ends his coaching career as a failure. I hope the Rams continue to be a failure as an organization. To What kind of actually blows my mind is like, we yes, we hate the Rams, or yes, we hate the Patriots as Seahawks fans, but like, I keep hearing this notion that the Pats stole the Super Bowl from the Seahawks, and I know everybody hates bringing that up, but I think that is so completely untrue. The Seahawks handed, they gifted that Super Bowl to the Patriots on a silver platter. Like they, they, you know, they tied it up and gift wrapped 
gift wrapped it to them. Like, I, I just don't think it's true that they stole it from us at all. Um, so not only that, Tom Brady has already cemented his legacy, you know, winning five Super Bowls. He's the greatest of all time. I, I don't think there's too much debate about that, but that's the overwhelming majority agrees with that. If Brady gets one more ring, you know, the narrative does not change with Tom Brady. Tom Brady is the GOAT either if he loses or if he gets another ring. But if the Rams get a ring, we as Seahawks fans are going to be hearing so much shit for the next whatever bazillion years until the Seahawks reestablish their dominance over the Rams. Are you guys are you, any Seahawks fan that is rooting for the Rams on Sunday? Are you telling me you are prepared to hear Rams fans say, "Oh, Jared Goff has just as many Super Bowl rings as Russell Wilson"? That is shit I cannot handle. That will drive me emotionally insane, psychologically insane. I cannot handle that. So, Evan, what what Ram fans are you talking about? The I, next I, Ram I fan, yeah, the next Ram Rams fan I hear from will be the first. Okay, they are hiding. They are ready to come out of their lair. <laughs> they are hiding in their cave, and they are ready to pounce if they win the Super Bowl. So that is my two part argument for why we should root for the Patriots. Is because guess what? The uncomfortable truth is, yes, we can hate the Patriots as Seahawks fans, but they haven't exactly done anything to us that is, like, not in the fair realm of, you know, like, fair play or something like that. The Rams have been a thorn in our side for years, and, you know, they're a divisional rival. The Patriots are not a divisional rival. You know, they're hateable, sure, but root for the Patriots. What about you, Brian? Where do you stand on this? he, I, for very for different reasons, uh, I'm I'm with Evan. I, I just I was shocked when I, I ran a poll on Twitter asking this question before the championship games happened, and I said, if this was theoretically the matchup, who would you cheer for? Like seventy percent said they would cheer for the Rams. I was like totally shocked i think it was 62 percent, but like whatever it was the majority and the healthy majority and I, I it just blows my mind that that's where people's um allegiances go a lot of people were referencing the cheatriots like that they're cheaters and i'm like i don't care that they taped a jets practice ah uh, Jason is saving us just time. We will come back to this topic uh, in just a Just moment. before Nathan was about to chime in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot to say. Jason, are you able to hear us? I, we see your figure. <laughs> Maybe we're, uh, no, we're not quite problems. there yet. Technical difficulties. Uh, I've been I've been sh shooting messages back and forth with Jason. These poor guys trying to, to join these Google Hangouts. Now, I figured Jason was young enough that I didn't have to give him a lot of instructions for how Google Hangouts would work. Uh, most of the time we have guests on here, I have to go into great detail because it's like technology craziness. But man, Jason's like millennial. I would just expect this like. Hey, Brian, you got a home phone you can uh, connect him through on? <laughs> Dude, I am telling you. I you do have a home phone, a don't you? Cell dead zone in our house. Oh, switch carriers. A whole on this. I'm very happy to have my company pay for my my wireless bill. So, um, Jason, if you're able to hear us, you might want to try hanging up and joining back in. Um, so, I guess you know my reasoning for for not wanting the the Rams to win is 
I think it's bad for the Seahawks. I don't think it's huge major difference, but I think that, look, there's a lot of history of what happens when Super Bowl winners, how they fare um, in years following and how Super Bowl losers fare in years following. Um, and there's not a lot of good history for teams that lose the Super Bowl. It's, it's pretty dreadful, and I want dreadful for the Rams. Um, I also don't want free agents to want to sign um, with the Rams and, or free agents that they have to give them better deals to stay with the Rams. And, and I think that's what happens when you win a Super Bowl. You start getting uh, veterans who are willing to, to sacrifice for you. Jason, I see you've tried joining again. Can you hear us now? Can we hear you now? Wow. This is maybe the best interview we've done uh, on the show. Uh, we get to make all the points. Um, uh, Jeff, Nathan, why don't you take over? I'm going to try to talk with Jason on uh, a separate line. All right. All right, Nathan. I feel like you have a different perspective on this. I mean, I do in that I don't care. I think that's maybe the right answer. If you're going into this game rooting for anyone uh, – I don't really get it. The, the Patriots are the evil empire. The Patriots did cheat a bunch and I don't really care too much about that, but it was kind of crappy. And the, you know, they beat the Seahawks in the Super Bowl. So yeah, I, I don't really have a strong feeling here. Um, there's a lot of things that will uh, potentially light up my mentions in ways that I don't, I'm not excited about. So I definitely don't want uh, like Todd Gurley to go off um, or, you know, any kind of a run based offense to really dominate the game. I, that would uh, Wait a second. I, me for a bit. Pause for a second. Cause I, I love that. I love that. Like, let's all acknowledge that we've got some priors and, and like, there's a little bit like we, there's, you kind of cheer to make sure you don't have to like defend them all the time. And, and I think yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, yeah. And priors are definitely part of it, but also like literally my mentions will be miserable. If, <laughs> if there's some fluky thing or some stupid thing. And so I just don't even want to deal with it. So that's a big, uh, you know, motivator for me in this and who I'm rooting for. Uh, I, you know, I don't have the same hate for the Rams that it sounds like Evan and other people do like, if this was the Niners, it'd be very different for me. Um, I still hold a lot of uh, dislike for them. And I, I think, you know, Jed York is, you know, crappy, trashy owner. And so I, I would not root for them, um, though I do like Kyle Shanahan, which is also part of why I like the Rams. Like, this McVay thing is fun. It sucks that he's in our division and that he's so good, but it's fun. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't know, long term, if – Jared Goff having as many rings is, is a problem, then like the Seahawks have other problems, right? Like the, yeah. that'll either be something that fixes itself or it just isn't an issue. So I don't have a strong uh, feeling on this one way or the other. What if it, what if it were the Cardinals? See, that's an interesting one because I actually still really hate the Cardinals, but for a lot of, because of people who aren't there anymore, um, namely Bruce Arians, oh. the new sheriff in town. I would never, ever, ever root for Bruce Arians. If somehow Bruce Arians, if uh, there's no scenario where Tampa or the Cardinals play the Niners in the Super Bowl, but if that was an NC championship game or something, I think Bruce Arians is the guy I would root for the least just because they didn't even have like, I don't know. They won some games here and stuff and that was annoying, but Bruce Arians was the whole new sheriff in town and all that crap was very annoying. Well, it's, it's funny. I, I feel like the, I don't know about you, Jeff, but like the Cardinals, I never really gave a crap about Arians that much one way or another. I, I thought he was kind of obnoxious, but 
I can't I, like I love Larry Fitzgerald. I'm a huge huge fan of, and so like it's hard for me to not cheer for him um, in general. I would have been happy for him to win a ring. And Arizona for me, most of the time, it's not it's not about the players. It's usually about, about the fan base. No, Jim Harbaugh. Yeah, like definitely, definitely. But like Arizona Cardinals fans, like they have like the most pitiful fan franchise in history. Like they don't have anything to brag about, and you kind of feel for them. The Rams are not much better. So, um, who did you root for in the Steelers Cardinals Super Bowl? I didn't watch it. <laughs> I didn't give a shit. Again, about that's the that right Super answer. Bowl. Yeah, I didn't yeah. care at all. Uh, Jason, are you? Are, can we hear you? See, Jason keeps telling us, telling me that he can hear us and see himself. Is his <laughs> microphone he, turned on? I don't know, man. Uh, Evan, who did you root for in the Cardinals Steelers Super Bowl? I think death. I know the answer on this one, but what? My death. <laughs> no, but you had to. Did you did you pick someone? Did you root? No. Considering I was, I believe, thirteen years old or fourteen years old. Oh, um, I don't even remember what my beliefs were at the moment. Um, <laughs> I, I definitely wasn't rooting for the Steelers. I can tell you that. Like <laughs> this was before Seattle won their first Super Bowl, so you weren't actually yeah. a fan yet, right? Yeah, I, I became a fan in 2016. So um, no, I, I, I everybody knows I hate the Steelers with like a burning passion, just because that was the first football game I ever watched. Like my first football football game was that Seahawks. <laughs> Steelers Super Bowl, and I'll never forget going to a Super Bowl party and Seahawks fans just like complete, like genuinely crying, like they were around me, and it was just this overwhelmingly depressing experience. Um, but to answer your question, if like if it was today, if that game is today, I'm leaning rooting for the Cardinals. If the game was today, I'd be in the same place. At the time, I felt very strongly about rooting for the Steelers because Seattle still hadn't won one. And so Seattle would have been, that would have been one less franchise with Seattle that that hadn't had a ring. And that mm -hmm. was very important to me. And that the Cardinals and the division and all that would have, you know, separated themselves in that way. That was very important to me. But if it was today, I probably would root for the Cardinals too. Larry Fitzgerald being a big part of that. Yeah. At that point, I was with Nathan. I just thought Seattle was never going to win one, and they had that one taken away from them. And I wanted company. Now, if you told me like, now if you told me like 2013 Jim Harbaugh Niners versus current Steelers, I I would have no idea what I'd do in that situation. It's got to be the Steelers, right? Hell no! I fucking hate the Steelers. I know, but I think the I think the Harbaugh Niners are my least favorite team ever. Yeah. I, I think I think I respected the hell of them, but I just hate them both so much. Well, so who of you are old enough and you know been Nathan or uh, Evan? You're out of this question. Uh, so when the Rams actually were Super Bowl contenders and winning like greatest show on turf, you know, late '90s, early 2000, and were you like? I kind of remember vaguely by the time I got onto Twitter in like 2008 or 2009, maybe there were some Rams fans left over, but like, I don't know. Like, I, I, I don't, I, I can't even remember because I, I vaguely recall Rams fans being obnoxious back then, but I don't even know where that would have been because it wouldn't have been Twitter. <laughs> so, like, I don't. 
I don't remember the Rams fans, but Seattle and L and well, St. Louis at the time, the Rams had a really good rivalry there in the Holmgren years. Um, there was a year that, you know, Seattle lost to the Rams twice and then played them in the wild card round. I think it was, and um, lost to him in that game on a, of all things, a Bobby Ingram drop in the end zone, which was, you know, one in a million type deal and stuff like that. And um, there was a Nate Burleson punt return in a, a home game. I think, uh, that might've been, I, I think it was one of those where the Rams won like a bunch in a row and then just it flipped on a dime. And then all of a sudden the Seahawks won a bunch in a row. And, but for a while there, that was a really good rivalry. If this was like 10 years ago, I would feel different about this. I'd feel more about the, I'd feel more like I do about the Niners for the Rams, but that's been so long now. Holy crap. He figured out technology. Jason. Welcome to the show, dude. Thank you, thank you. Sorry about that. I, my something's up with my computer, so I had to go to the phone. Should have done it earlier. Man, you you set a record for the most uh, you know eager and persistent guest we've had. Like most folks would have been like, screw you guys, I'm gonna go watch Netflix. But uh... <laughs> I thought about it. Trust me. I thought about it. <laughs> uh, so uh, let me let me give you a better introduction than that. Um, for folks that don't know uh, Jason, uh, shame on you. He is uh, a fantastic uh, journalist. Um, actually, I first came to know about Jason when he joined uh, the Seattle Times as a beat writer. Um, you know, uh, and I don't remember exactly the years. You'll fill me in on those, uh, Jason. The, the Super Bowl year. Yeah. That's right. Uh, yeah. That's the problem, dude. You left, and look what's <laughs> happened. So, um, Jason uh, has. I, re I, I am still a subscriber to the Seattle Times. I read the paper every morning, and uh, I always look for Jason's articles. Um, not your typical articles does not just regurgitate quotes and press conferences, but actually spends time with players and coaches and um, people across the league to have some really interesting insights and angles on the game that we love and the team that we love. So um, he has now moved on and, and uh, writes for The Athletic, and... Uh, uh, we're going to talk to you today about an article you wrote um, around the one of the best games in the history of the Seahawks, uh, the yep. 2015 uh, NFC Championship. Well, Which technically it was in 2015, always, but it always gets me. Yeah, I hate that. Yeah. <laughs> so, welcome, Jason. Thank you. Thank you for the very kind words. Yeah. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about what got you started um, on this article and. You know, the timing is is uh, appropriate. Yeah. So actually, before the season, I did an oral history on the 49ers Seahawks NFC Championship game the year before, because that was the, one of the best live sporting events I've ever seen. Uh, and and that game was just so epic that I I wanted to do something on it just kind of because I thought it would be fun to relive it. And when I did that, a bunch of the guys I talked to. First of all, they couldn't remember what year was which one was which and all that kind of stuff. But they they also uh, a bunch of them had really strong told me that they actually remembered the Packers game better. That that game was the one that that stood out to them uh, far better. So when I was doing that, I kind of just kept that in the back of my head. And when the season ended this year, I was like, yeah, it seems like a good time as any with kind of the downtime in the off season just to go back and look at that game. And so I just called as many guys as I could in the time span I could. And the the stories that those guys told uh, were pretty incredible. And the, the little moments that happened in that game uh, are some, is something that I think uh, 
even those guys are amazed by even after all the games that they played and the crazy stuff they saw over the years. Yeah, what's what's uh, maybe the the top thing that one or two things maybe that you learned writing this article that you didn't know before you started? So one of them was uh, Luke Wilson talking about the two point conversion, and first of all, he wasn't even a, a pass receiver on that play at all. He wasn't supposed to be. He was supposed to kind of block Russell's uh, backside, and he had fl- he had. Uh, turned around for a split second and seen he thought he saw Russell about to do one of his like banana spins back to kind of start going the other way. And so he was like, Oh, okay, well he's coming my way. So he took off towards the corner, turned around, saw Russell hadn't actually done that and thought, Oh crap. Like I'm going to get my butt chewed out for this uh, in film. And Russell just chucks the ball up and everyone on that play he said gives Clinton ha-ha, or haha Clinton Dix crap for just like basically not making a play when it looked like he was right there. And Luke said, I, it's the cre- craziest thing, but he goes, I swear the final like eight, 10 feet, that ball was falling. It moved like five feet. Uh, and he goes, if you watch, like I don't catch it cleanly because it looks like the ball is going to come down like right on top of us. And at the last second, like the wind caught it or whatever. And it, it moved on me uh, and like, totally surprised him and totally surprised me and I thought that was really interesting and when I went back and like watched the video in slow motion like maybe it's just my eyes but it sure looks like you can see the ball moving like that so I thought that was pretty crazy man that was that was maybe the most unlikely play uh you know I guess I guess up there would have to be the the onside kick but that happens time to time um that two-point conversion had no business happening at all. That play was a total disaster. It was supposed to be like a quick hit to Baldwin, and he wasn't open, and Luke wasn't a receiver, and there's almost none of the offensive guys I talked to thought that Russell had any clue that Luke was there or could have possibly seen him. He just he just kind of like chucked it up and threw it. I mean, it was just one of those things that like nothing about that play made any sense, and yet it it worked and came together. And had so, they not got that play, they would have lost the game. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, who knows, actually, that game. Yeah, but everything seemed to be falling. That's a good point. That's going good. their way at that point. Um, uh, oral history, you know, as a article type, so someone who loves writing and, and journalism in general, like, it's not the most common. I mean, what, what's got uh, – what has you interested in that, that format? I think it's just a really cool way to tell – a lot of perspectives about something that like a season or a game or something where people all are experiencing it in a completely different way. And I, I find it really hard to like write for me at least uh, like a coherent story with all those different viewpoints. And so in oral history, it's kind of like my job is to do the hard work of interviewing those hard work is to just do the easy work of interviewing those guys and like listening to their stories and I just like stringing it together like that, almost kind of like a documentary, I guess, is the best way to think of it. Uh, and sort of just letting their words and their experience tell the story of, of the game. And I, I think more than anything, like it allows, I hope, fans and people who remember the game really fondly and probably remember it better than the players do, frankly, uh, to like relive kind of where they were and what they were feeling and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's just something when when there's so many viewpoints in a game and so, you know, you've got like John Ryan's involved in the fake field goal, but he's not involved at all in the two point conversion. And Luke Wilson's involved in the two point conversion, but he's not involved at all in like the defense 
I just think it's a really cool way to hear from a lot of different people. Uh, yeah, I, I wasn't surprised that uh, Wilson and Ryan, you just mentioned, those quotes were great. But I was surprised how good Tony McDaniel's quote Yeah, he was awesome, wasn't he? Yeah, like, did anyone else jump off the page to you? Like, his quotes to me were the most surprising. Uh, Not really. Maybe it's because I've interviewed all those guys, like, quite a bit. I haven't interviewed Tony a ton. I've interviewed him a, a handful of times. Uh, but all the other guys I'd interviewed enough that I kind of, like, expected it. Like you said, John Ryan, like. He's kind of my go-to uh, reliable for little like light humor and stuff like that. I knew he'd be pretty good. But yeah, I talked to Tony for like 25 minutes. I got off the phone. I was like, holy cow, like that was really, really good. And he was really funny and honest. And he was like one of the few guys that was not willing to admit like, oh yeah, I knew we were going to come back. Of course we were going to come back. He was like, nah, I was looking, thinking of going to Vegas and flying to Miami and like go getting drunk. And so I didn't have to feel this way, uh, which I was like, all right, I appreciate your honesty. Man, go ahead, Jeff. I was going to say, uh, was there anyone you really wanted to speak to, but you didn't get the chance to? You know, like for something like this, I mean, the story's already like ridiculously long. I think it's like 4,000 some words long. So at yeah. some point, like I got enough stuff that I was like, if I do, like I could do 10,000 words, but I think 4,000 is plenty for it. And I wasn't trying to do like the completely definitive thing. I just, I wanted <laughs> to kind of let people relive it. Uh, obviously, Russell would have been, would have been cool, uh, but he's pretty hard to get. Um, who else did I really – I wanted to talk to Hauschka, but I couldn't get a hold of him. Don't you and, think you could have just put Russell's quotes in there without talking to him? Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I was sort of <laughs> just kind of being generous because he's the quarterback involved in so much stuff, but I don't think he would have probably said something uh, particularly interesting, I guess. But, no, there, you know, I would have loved to talk to uh, – honestly, Earl and Richard would have been the two. If I could have talked to – to any two it would have been Earl and Richard uh because they played they played so hurt that game and, and as actually really like as a as an aside uh I had reached out to Dan Quinn to see if he wanted to to told him what I was kind of doing I said hey like no pressure at all I haven't really kept in touch with Dan since he left here very much at all and I was like no pressure uh I'm just doing this I thought I would reach out and he was like no I can help you out and I was like you sure and he's like yeah I'm in Hawaii I'll, I'll call you at this time and he called me and he basically just like called I'm hundred percent sure just because he wanted to make sure that like people knew uh I mean heroics a little bit of an overstatement, but I guess how gutsy Earl and Richard's performance was that day with how injured those guys were and how much he really respected that, which I thought said a whole lot about how he viewed those guys. Yeah, I mean it's it's uh, uh, Super Bowl season as as uh, everybody knows, and um, that that storyline is one that we'll just never get told um, really fully uh, nationally. Um, it'll never really be part of the lore that even that Super Bowl that followed that game, Earl and Richard were in no position to be playing. Cam then got hurt the the yep. minute before. Um, yeah, I mean th that that group. Um, was should not have been out on the field that day, and nope. still came within a a fateful play of uh, winning back to back Super Bowls. So crazy, crazy story. Yeah, it really is. Um, I'm curious. Like uh, uh, as I said, um, I've always admired your writing, and I'm, I'm I'm interested if if there's writers out there that that you admire and that that you follow and and uh, watch what they're doing. Yeah, tons of people. I love Wright Thompson at ESPN. Uh, I love Chris Ballard at Sports Illustrated. 
I love Eli Saslaw at the Washington Post. Uh, Lee Jenkins. Well, well, gosh, Lee Jenkins isn't even a writer anymore. He now works for the the Clippers, which is crazy. But I always loved Lee Jenkins. Uh, Tom Junot at Esquire. There's so many people. Like honestly, I'm I'm a huge writing nerd. This is what I love to do. This is the only thing I'm really good at. Uh, and so I like as much as I have fun with it. I I, I like kind of the craft of it, I guess, like studying it and why something might work and something might not work, why something else might not work or how people do their stuff. So I pretty much read everything I can. And I try to actually read like more. Uh, I try to read stuff that's not sports related as much as I can, uh, which I do a lot just to have kind of a different perspective than the sports field. But those are the those are the sports people I'm really into. You know, um, being at the athletic uh, uh you are exposed to to folks like Ben Baldwin, who yep. uh, super into analytics, and um, there's a lot of analytics rising in football right now. Yep. Um, you've always struck me as someone who's more on the feature writing side, more on yep. the the person story. Um, curious if if analytics are making your job, they're affecting your your approach to writing at all. No, not not at all. Because like I, I I'm just a believer. I I'm a big believer that there's like so many there's so many ways to write about sports that like, and it's actually what I, I mean, not to, not to promote the brand here, but uh, it's, it's, there's so many different ways to, to cover the Seahawks. And I think it's one of the cool things about the athletic is that you can get someone like Ben Baldwin, who is writing about analytics or someone like Sam, who is writing about Sam gold, who's writing about uh, who's looking at like tape and film and trying to do stuff that way. And then you can get someone like me or Michael Sean or uh, I guess, but more like me who who's like, you know, maybe not really interested in that kind of stuff, but really is interested in sort of the, the personal story side of things. And I don't think either of them are right or wrong. I mean, I'm not opposed to analytics at all. Like it's not it's not something that I'm anti by any means. It's just it's just not something that I'm ever going to probably be like super I'm never going to be smart enough like Ben or those guys to like really go in and study that stuff. I read what they, what they have to say. And I'm always like, I could not do that or write that. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, the, the thing I'm just kind of like most interested in is, is the human side. And, I, and to be honest, that took me like a really long time to kind of feel comfortable with and figure out. I mean, I, there are so many different people in so many different fields in sports media that do things their own way. And for a long time, I would like, I kind of wanted to try to, do it all and and please everyone and it's i just kind of had to realize like this is what i'm interested in it's what i really like and so i just have to kind of stay true to that nathan oh sorry i was did i not mute myself <laughs> i was trying to that was our to professional mute. throw to nathan uh like that was me messing finally... up my cough button yes <laughs> I, I do have a question though i mean you talked about dan quinn talking about the heroics of uh uh, Earl and Sherman. Um, did you get anything in inter- uh, one of the, there's so many plays that kind of fall, fall by the wayside with that game. Cause there were just so many crazy plays. Sherm's tackle on that last drive for the Packers with uh, his injured shoulder taken down. I think Jordy Nelson um, is one that I, one of my favorites. Did you get anything interesting on that or, or that was, what that other was the exact play that Quinn talked about? Oh, really? Yeah. That was the exact play that he highlighted one from Earl and one from Richard. One from Earl, it, the Earl one wasn't quite as uh, specific, but it was it was basically after Earl, you know, Earl went to the locker room that game and, and Dan said that, you know, like they knew in the press box that it was pretty significant. And he said, 
within whatever it was, 10 plays of Earl coming back out. Earl comes flying downhill to like make a tackle. And he said, most guys like would not go in with their injured shoulder. They'd find some other way. And he said, Earl went right in with like, let in with his shoulder uh, um, to make the play really stuttered. One was the exact play that, that you mentioned that he said that, like Richard had no basically Richard had no choice but to like lean in with that injured arm and he said like Richard made uh made the play and he said I like those are the two plays that really really stuck out to him of all the crazy things like I thought it was really interesting that those two are the ones that that he talked about right away that's pretty cool were there other stuff that kind of hit the the cutting floor that you would have liked to include if you could have gone to the 10,000 words uh there wasn't a whole bunch of like interesting i mean i i loved uh i love that baldwin said at him and jermaine are like such uh they're not polar opposites but they're pretty different and really good friends but pretty different in, in personality and i've always i've talked with them over with with that with them over the years about that and and uh he said after the game ended uh he goes it was so funny looking back because it showed how different they were he's like jermaine was crying and I'm just like screaming like a lunatic, and uh, and I thought that was uh, that was pretty funny. And then I actually got like a text from someone in the Seahawks who said that they missed the onside kick because they were like taking they were getting ready to leave and they were taking a piss, and they uh, they like heard the crowd roar and go crazy and were like, oh crap, like like what's happening and went running back out there. So I didn't learn that till after the story came out, but I thought that was pretty funny. How do you miss the onside kick? Like the game is like. Really in the balance at that point. Wow. I, I know. Trust yeah, me, sometimes I know. you got to go, man. Like, I guess. No, we've all been there. <laughs> uh, was that the game? Like, I'm trying to remember. Was that the game that afterwards Baldwin, like, yep. went yep. off on the reporters? Yep. Yep. Um, did. did you talk to him about that at all? And Yeah, I did. I actually forgotten that, and he brought that up. Uh, I because the because the, there was so many. I mean, that was the game that I'd kind of forgotten too. That was the game Michael Bennett rode the police bike. officer's bike around the field. Uh, uh, but yeah, I, I I'd forgotten that. And Baldwin was like talking about the end. We were talking about the end of the game, and and he brought that up. He has he's like I have really no idea like what I have no idea what I said. He's like I don't know if I was cussing or if I wasn't. Uh, he's like I don't really remember what I said, and I don't really know why I did it. I was just like so fired up and like adrenaline rush from from the game that he's like i just like kind of went crazy uh which is pretty pretty awesome so i wasn't even down there for that i don't even i i had no idea that that even happened like that that he went off like that but yeah that that was that game does that mean that like we need to have some dude from stanford on the seahawks every time we win an nfc championship to yell at reporters is that like i I was gonna say a requirement i think like in a stanford guy with a big chip on his shoulder is like we'll have to They'll have to just like bring someone in next time that happens if they don't have someone on the team just to just to keep the tradition going. Uh, Jason, we've kept you on for a while. This has been really great. Um, last question I'd ask you is, uh, you know, uh, going into to this off season, what what are the storylines you're going to be following, and what has your interest? That's a really good question. I'll leave the, I'm not, I'm not as like, I'm, I was never super connected, but I, I'm not as like dialed in with the day to day by any means as I was when I was kind of like more traditionally on the beat. All I know is I would love to do something on the Griffin brothers. Uh, 
I've been trying to do that for quite a while. Uh, so that's like very high on my list. Uh, and I'd love to do something big on Russell Wilson, but let's, <laughs> I've got a lot, I've got like a lot of months ahead of me, but those are, those are kind of like my two off season goals. So as I, like I said, as, as far as the like free agency stuff, and things like that i'm i'm probably the worst person to ask for that stuff right now because uh, <laughs> you guys would know a hell of a lot more than i would but those are the two stories that i'd really like to tell all right well dude uh be careful when you do the griffin brother story because they're definitely going to try to pull a fast one on you and uh you're going to think you're interviewing one of them and it'll be the other and uh i dealt gonna... with the morris twins at ku marcus and Marquise morris and they would legit do thing in the world so i've been i've been trained <laughs> all twins do that yep uh well hey jason awesome job it's great reading your stuff um tell folks where else they can find you uh at the athletic uh online yeah yeah at the athletic.com uh come check us out you can you can get all sorts of we have national stuff local stuff and uh it's not too expensive so you should come give us a try <laughs> Could. Hey, support good journalism, folks. There's not a lot out there, and uh, some of them are over there. So uh, thanks for coming on, Jason, and uh, hopefully we can have you back again. Hey, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Have a good night. All right. Take care. You too. Bye. That was Jason Jenks uh, talking to us about uh, his article and overcoming incredible adversity of his own. That was quite the comeback to make it onto the show. It almost rivals the 2014-15 NFC Championship. Um, where were we, guys? Uh, do we want to revisit that at all? Is it time to move on? I think we can move on. <laughs> unless, unless Evan wants to have a rebuttal about why we should really, really not root for the Rams. But. No. I have one point to make that, that I didn't get to. And this is, this is a little bit out there. But just to show like the razor's edge of how... The victor gets to write history. You are a Patriots comeback from 28-3, a touchdown from the one-yard line by the Seahawks, and a 2005, you know, maybe not uh, a properly refereed game, although I never blame a game on a ref, but, you know, you're – three very minor changes away from the Seahawks and Tom Brady having the same amount of Super Bowls. Like say that. that I, I'm just saying like the Patriots have not dominated teams in the Super Bowl in general. Now we all consider them the dynasty for good reason. They've won, a, they've won a ton and they've been to a number, you know, more than that. But, uh, it's a razor's edge. I mean, a, a few of those games go a different way. Even the last two, like the 28-3 and the Seahawks one, even just that, which is not that crazy to say that could have been different, you're talking about two Super Bowls for the Seahawks and three for Brady and Belichick. And the, the tuck the, rule, too. The tuck rule. I mean, yeah, like there's, there's legitimate pieces out there that, I mean, history will never look back and have those, those nuances, but um, – it's just an amazing, you know, minutia that ends up being the the way these these stories get told. You can play that same game with both of the Giants losses, though. For you the can. Patriots, so you can. Yeah, and I think even if they had not won a single Super Bowl, I mean, the Bills are kind of the counter to this, right? Because nobody really looks back and thinks of that Bills team for anything except for 
failure, but just getting to the Super Bowl as many times as they have, it's, been, it's unreal. Yeah. Four straight, right? Yeah. But, you know, who knows? If they lose, if, if they don't win some of those early, then, you know, they have they had a, a little stretch there. You know, how does that change with Belichick? Do does, do people get antsy if, you've, if you're the guy that can't get over the hump and then you have a little bit of a dry spell? It's always interesting to think about. Well, that was the storyline going into the Seahawks matchup. They had not won a Super Bowl since 2004. Yep. And and the up until the very last play, that was the talk because Jermaine Curse's catch was the next David Tyree, Victor Cruz, you know, oh, here we go again moment for the Patriots. It wasn't Victor Cruz. I'm actually just trying to remember who was that that caught Mario that. Mario Manningham. There Manningham, thank yeah. you. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that – it's just amazing how teams just shoot themselves in the foot so many times against New England. I don't know if like Belichick like mind fucks people or but, like D Ford going offside, Kyle Shanahan not running the ball. The Seahawks play at the one yard line. What a coincidence. D Ford just happens to be offsides. Who knows? Did anyone listen to the softy interview today with the uh, handicapper guy? No, I dig it. No, I never got around to it. It was a little underwhelming, but was it? I mean, not not for any lack of softy. Softy kind of grilled him, which was kind of funny. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was basically just the refs were bad in that game, and the handicappers convinced it was thrown. So uh, if you didn't listen to it, no, nah, you didn't really miss much. Okay, oh, it sold it differently. Yeah, I'm guessing he probably sold it to softy differently as well. As well. Yeah, uh, much soft. more. Uh, uh, much more adamant about it early in, in the previous interview, but then when Safi had him on and asked him direct questions, like, do you have any actual evidence? He's like, well, not anything beyond what you saw with your own eyes. So, uh, uh, Hey, before we get off the Super Bowl and on to Evan's article, can can we, I just have to ask, like, what is your number one Super Bowl uh, snack, appetizer, food that you you look forward to around the room? Say it again. Nachos. Absolutely. And are these nachos you make or that people bring or what? I'm not a chef. I'm not a I'm not a artist in the kitchen, Brian. No. Uh no, it, it changes every single year, but I, I think nachos are the go-to game food for the Super Bowl. Who, who's not eating nachos on game day? Jeff, what do they do in Toronto? Uh we like nachos too, but I think my group loves fried chicken. Oh. We always incorporate some sort of fried chicken, whether it's – we've been big on Popeye's the last couple of years. <laughs> I don't know if I can go with you there, dude. Uh, it's a great bulk order. You can get a ton of food for very little, and it tastes great. But we always get chicken wings and nachos, some combination of that. And can't go wrong there. What about in the Earth's household? My dad's a big griller, um, and we don't usually – I don't think we really have many staples, but he's done pulled pork and brisket. He does some – it's not a grill, but he does some baked beans that are always really good. He's done bacon-wrapped jalapenos, a variety mm. of bacon-wrapped things. So there's always something tasty coming off the grill at my house or my dad's yeah. house. Yeah. That, jalapenos. Ugh. They're amazing. They're very good. They have flavor, so they're not up your alley. <laughs> For people who like that kind of thing, they're damn. Crazy. I just got owned. Holy cow! <laughs> uh, all right, Jeff. Sorry, I had to take us aside there for a second. My favorite Super Bowl snack is Oreos and apple juice. Are you <laughs> shitting me? 
No, no, you you know what I'm talking about, right? No. Evan took a lot of heat this week on Twitter because he said that was one of his favorite snacks. I did, okay, that's a twisting of my words. Oh, of course, I had to do that. I said apple juice happened to be in front of me one day, and I happened to experiment by dipping it in apple juice, oh. and, I, and it wasn't the worst thing I've ever tasted. Is that your pre-nap snack or your post-nap snack? Do you get that like after you wake up? How does that work? <laughs> Did you then dip it in sugar, like just to complete the whole cycle? <laughs> you know, maybe that's worth trying. Maybe. It, it probably would work out. Yeah, that is that's an interesting combination, Evan. Sorry, I know we're not supposed to troll each other. I know we. <laughs> teasing, uh, teasing's okay. Teasing's okay. okay. Anyway, one of my big takeaways from uh, Jason is people starting to use our boy uh, Cable Thanos to get to Russell. He's like the only one who can get a hold of this guy. Yeah, I, that Super Smash Bro game. Why do you think? Why do you think that is? Like, do you think it's because Russell doesn't want to do interviews because he's too busy because he doesn't really feel like like that's his brand? I'm just kind of curious. He's unique. I don't know. I, I think it's probably a brand thing. It's hard to say. I mean, do other quarterbacks? I mean, uh, Brady has not necessarily done a bunch of interviews, has he? I mean, Brady does the the Monday Night Football thing every week. He does right? this year. That that's no, he's yeah. done that for a couple oh, years cool. now. The Jim yeah, because he was doing it with it was Larry Fitzgerald for a long time, and I think uh, Aaron Rodgers is a little private, right? I mean, he and hard to blame him with all the stuff that surrounded him. But he sat down and did that big interview with Mina Kimes what, a year or two ago. That was cool. That was really, that was like last year, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just kind of curious. Like, I don't even know what a tell-all Russell Wilson interview would look like. <laughs> I almost like want to write a parody of that, but then I'd just get trolled by everyone thinking I was being a jerk. It was just like, I don't even know what that would look like. I, I bet it would be interesting. I, I I don't know. If you could actually get through to the real Russ who is in there, uh, it'd be pretty interesting. But yeah, he just doesn't seem to have any interest to be anything other than a very polished, uh, corporate-friendly kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Jeff. Uh, are we ready to talk about uh, Evan's article? Yeah, sure. So... <laughs> Don't be so excited, man. If <laughs> we have to. I'm still in the NFC Championship mode. I still want to relive that. But, yeah, Evan's article, I edited it. I really enjoyed reading it. If you haven't had a chance, it's still on hawkblogger.com. It really does take a pretty cool look at around the Seahawks offseason. Got a lot of cool insight from uh, Jason from Over the Cap and some other cap in experts. And really – and did you hear John Clayton co commented on it? Did you hear that? I heard it was in reference to like somebody being cut or something. It was was it brief or he scoffed at the idea of Mingo being cut. Okay, what? let me. Yeah. Okay, I don't. I love John Clayton, but like I always, I don't know if he's like, I don't want to come across as douchey here, but like I don't think he's super cap inclined. Am I wrong? Like, no, pretty he wrong. Is. He's really tuned into the cap. Really? I yeah. just I think that take is just I've heard some weird cap takes from him in the past and I, I don't know. I, I, I would I need to hear the clip behind like his logic on that. 
So Jim think- Moore, Jim Moore brought up your article on Danny David Moore, and he mentioned that there was an article on HawkBlogger.com suggesting that Mingo and Dixon were potential cap casualties. And he scoffed at both, saying that Mingo plays on every special teams unit and that Dixon was like one of the more valuable players when he played. I'm willing to go on record right now, 100% guarantee Barkevius Mingo will be cut. 100%. Like, there is and, – and, and if I prove to be wrong on that, then shame on the Seahawks. Like, that guy was – terrible this year he was he missed so many tackles and he's costing a decent check so you're telling me that the team can't go out i mean michael kendricks was cheaper than him and was 10 times the player so like that is not where the money should be spent it should be moved elsewhere on the team and so if he stays it's not because john clayton was right it's because the seahawks are wrong let let's take a look at that though real quick let's let's zero in on that so let's let's assume that argument is right whatever that he was good on special teams is his price tag of 5.5 million dollars worth him being somewhat good on special teams yes or no to that question no thank you it's not even close yeah close like you could you could cut him and say four million dollars i may have been three point okay three point three million dollars but i mean He's not worth that contract, and he wasn't that good in special teams that he stood out to, I think, everybody and the coaching staff. I, I, I could not disagree further with Clayton. I, I think Mingo is an 80 90% lock on being cut. Didn't Glowinski just sign a, like, three-year, $18 million deal or something like that? Which is pretty decent. Something like that. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of agents were bashing him. So, like – you're like halfway, more than halfway to, you know, that annual salary by cutting Mingo. Like you're telling me that, that I don't know, like there's just, there's a lot of value you can get for three and a half million dollars in this league. You can probably get two good players for three and a half million dollars. If you're, if you're wise and you're spending Fluker and Sweezy combined, I believe this year were less than that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I just think people forget how how much you can like uh, 3.5 million dollars is a stud kicker it's a top five kicker like i'd rather i would literally throw that money at steven goskowski i'd be totally okay with that really you you'd pay for a kicker yes absolutely i think a lot of seahawks fans are probably with you on that i'm not like it's because the it's because the cap cost is so minimal like we're talking an extra one two 2.5 million dollars for like a good one like we the Seahawks NFL teams blow through blow through so much stupid money on stupid risky players. Eddie Lacy five point five million dollars. Like, you know, uh, who was that left guard Jokel that we pay nine million dollars? Like, if you're willing to pay these dinguses like outrageous money, can you at least like pay like a like a, an important special teams player who actually puts points on the board like an extra million or two to get a good one? I like, feel like I'm I'm hearing uh, Nathan's John Schneider wheels turning in his head. <laughs> Who made all those moves? Yeah, I I didn't say anything, but yeah, I mean that's fair. <laughs> uh, but you were you were shaking your head. You would not spend it on a kicker either, right? No, I mean they had a Pro Bowl kicker in camp that was basically free that they cut, which was you know dumb. But so the problem isn't 
investing cap. The problem is talent identification, right? I mean, they went with the more expensive kicker this year and that didn't work out for them. So um, do better at evaluating kickers and find the cheap ones that are readily available. I will tell you though, on that front, um, I totally understood why they made the decision they made. Watching practices and watching those two kick and then watching the games, Janikowski was significantly more reliable you know, over and over and over again. I don't know what else you can do to make those calls other than younger guy you keep just and hoping a prayer. But knowing what happened last year with Blair Walsh and <laughs> seeing a guy who was in Myers who was actually missing a lot of kicks in practice and Janikowski who was like sure-footed, I kind of got that one. I wasn't happy about it, but I kind of got it. Um, I'm just admitting that I was way off on that as well. Just while we're on the topic of cutting players, do you mind if we stop quickly on the Cam Chancellor situation? There were, I, I think this is a really important topic that a lot of fans, um, well, I think it's been kind of flying under the radar because everybody's like, oh, didn't Cam Chancellor retire? Technically, no. Cam Chancellor never submitted his, you know, retirement papers to the NFL. Cam Chancellor has been pup on PUP the last year. He is currently still a Seahawk, actually. Um, the reason, the long story short reason for that is it, so when Cam Chancellor signed his deal a couple years ago, um, he had a ton of injury guarantees and obviously he got really injured in the past year, year and a half. And, um, if he had submitted his retirement notice to the NFL, when players do that per the CBA, they forfeit any injury guarantees they have in their contract, in their base salary, in their contract. The big deal with Cam Chancellor in 2019 to watch, I think, um, maybe one of the biggest moves of the offseason, um, and it, there's not much the Seahawks can really control with that. this. It's kind of like up to health. But if Cam Chancellor, and this is per the specific language in his contract, let, actually, let me back step a little bit. Cam Chancellor has $5.2 million of injury guaranteed base salary for 2019. Okay? So if Cam Chancellor passes a physical – at the start of the next league year, that's the specific terminology in his contract. If he can pass a physical, those injury guarantees do not exercise. So he's not protect. That's not protected money anymore because technically, you know, he has an able body who can play football, even though you know, he's not in shape, whatever. But from medical standards, he is able to play. So if he can pass a physical, the Seahawks would be able to cut him pre June first and save eight million dollars net on the cap from cutting him. If he can't pass a physical, that $5.2 million is Cam Chancellor's money. It's completely protected. So if he can't pass a physical, can't play football per the team doctor, the team doc does it, that's the person who exercises the physical. If he can't pass a physical, that $5.2 million is his. The Seahawks could still cut him, but they would only save $2.8 million. So the difference is $8 million or $2.8 million. That's a Big difference in money. That's $5.2 million. Now, the one kind of situation, you know, little side note I do want to mention here is sometimes NFL teams get weird, and sometimes they say, hey, you know what? Or maybe it's not weird, but they say, hey, Kim, you're so important to our franchise that we're just going to turn this money into like – or we're just going to give the money to you. Like they can they can just do that. And, you know, maybe this us do something like that in this situation. But um, Kim's situation is something to watch this offseason because everybody thinks he retired – Rightfully so, but he's not retired. He's still a Seahawk, and his situation has some really big cap implications. But what's what's Cam's motivation for trying to pass a physical? 
Uh, there's not really much motivation because it's, uh, to answer your question, zero, but it's also based on like medical standards. So it's not like he's really about him being in shape or condition. It's about him like being able to actually play football without, you know, dying or something like that. So, and do we know if those doctors are independent? Like, obviously a Seahawks doctor would be pretty, have good motivation to... Well, yeah, so that's a great question. And that comes up a lot. Um, they're completely independent. Like they're, they have oversight. Like they're not free from complete accountability. Um, they are employed by the Seahawks, but there's no funny business going on with that type of stuff. I'm, I'm sure there would be potential lawsuit. Yeah, implications. yeah. there would be agreements for the PA. This yeah. is the implications. There's, you can trust the team doctor to make the right decision is what I'm saying. Because I think that there can be funny business. It's not really funny business. But when it comes to like trades and when players have to pass physicals and stuff like that, a team can trade for someone that they like know has an issue and then pass their physical, um, even though they know they have an issue. I, I don't think that you're going to see anything like this with a contract situation. Yeah, what's what's the what are the odds you you're predicting, Evan, that that uh, he passes a physical? Oh God. <laughs> Honestly, I have no idea because I'm not. This would be a great question for um, that. Who is it? Pro Football Doc on Twitter or something like that. Um, I have no idea. I have no idea. All I know is it has massive cap implications. Just speculating, I think that if he could pass a physical, and we're talking again, just like an actual, like straight up, like up and up physical, uh, I think he would have been playing last year. Yeah. Like, there's no reason for them to have, for him, he doesn't seem like the kind of guy that would have set out, and I don't think they would have kept him out if he was cleared to play. Yeah, and it doesn't seem like the kind of injury that would get better. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't, that's again, probably, there's a lot of medical stuff there, I had no idea, but no, it doesn't seem like it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good It's a good point. Evan, and Evan's the first person I've seen report on that information, because when you go in over the cap and look at the Seahawks cap, all you see is the dead money that would come up, and you don't see that kind of thing. So even... I, I didn't know that at all. I thought I compared it to Cliff Averill's situation where he had the neck injury. But Well, it's specific to Cam's contract in terms of his language. I had somebody who had no, who has knowledge of his contract tell me that, but that's not the way it is for every single contract. This is specifically Cam's contract. Okay, so question for you. Uh, one of the topics that was going around uh, the NFL last week is that a lot of teams and agents are expecting all of the top pass rushers on the market to be franchise tagged. Yeah. So if assuming Clark goes that way, is there any specific names or any people that you still see as legitimate targets? If like the Clownies and Lawrence's and Clark's all come off? Yeah. I think the name that rings a bell is Trey Flowers of the Patriots. He's somebody who um, I think he had 8.5 sacks in 2018. Did it 100% live up to his potential? He's somebody that, you know, you could pair on the opposite side of, of Frank Clark, and I really don't think the Patriots are going to keep him, honestly. Um, for some reason, I just have a hard time seeing them pay him. You know, may, maybe he gets on them, and he's kind of – he's not under the radar, but I think he's somebody you could get cheaper than, you know, like the Clownies, the Lawrences, um, the Ansaws, whoever the – Frank Clark, whoever the hell else is on the market. I think he's somebody you could get like a notch below – um, maybe like five or six million dollars below. If we're talking like, if 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 you want to sign Frank today, I think twenty or twenty one per year gets 
gets the deal done like tonight, I think you could get Trey Flowers for maybe like 16, 17. I may be way off. I've, you know, I've, I've underpredicted contracts before, but, but I, I think you could get him for that price. The oh. other name that kind of jumped out to me was Preston Smith. Have you done any back work on him? He had like a ton of good pressure numbers and, yeah, I've heard his name thrown around. I haven't done, admittedly, too much digging into him. But, yeah, I mean, he could be an option. So they can afford Clark and adding, like, a 15-plus million-dollar pass rusher. That's right? Yeah, yeah. So, I yes, yes. This is the thing. When everybody's like, oh, the Seahawks need to extend Bobby Wagner, Russell Wilson, Frank Clark, um, Jaron Reed, all these big players. Yes, they do. The good news is the Seahawks have a ton of cap space, not only this year, but moving forward also. They're currently projected at like $115 million in 2020. The Seahawks have so much flexibility. And, and you know, that's not necessarily a good thing because it means they don't have like a ton of high-value talent on their roster. But the Seahawks got money to spend, and they can pay Frank Clark. They can pay Russell Wilson. They can pay Bobby Wagner. They can pay Jaron Reed and probably fit in one other big – elite pass rusher in the 17 to 19, 20 million dollar range if they wanted to. But philosophically, how do you guys feel about that? I mean, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll even just start. I, I see free agency as something you use to like finish, like close gaps. Like when you have already built a, a, a roster that's ready to compete. And, you know, I think the Cliff Averill and Michael Bennett signings were perfect examples of, of that kind of in place. That team needed pass rush, and they went hard after pass rush and free agency. But I don't believe in it as a way to build, you know, your roster too much unless you can really find young second or third tier, you know, players that you believe are going to have upside fit in your system. Like, I don't believe – I guess maybe to be really specific – I'm not a really big believer in buying expensive frontline free agents in almost any situation. I mean, I'm not against it in the right situations. I don't think Trey Flowers or Preston Smith are the right situations, right? Paying $15, $16 million for a seven-sack guy, that's, I think, how you get yourself in trouble really fast. Um, so, I, but, I mean, obviously there are, you know, exceptions and, you know, every once in a while, uh, Hutchinson will hit the market, right. And go ahead and pay, you know, that kind of guy or whatever. But I mostly agree with you on that. There's, there's some interesting stuff. There's two things that are interesting about what you just said and Trey flowers and pass rushers and the Patriots. Um, there's somebody out there that on Twitter that is uh, that, that has been working on recreating ESPN's pass, pass rush win percentage, which is just how often do, I'm not sure if it's pass block or pass rush. Anyways, it's how often do you either... It's uh, both. Is it both? Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's two sides of the same coin, right? Yeah. How often does a pass rusher get home or how often does a uh, does a, a pass protector keep the, the quarterback clean? And what they found was, uh, whoever was doing this, um, and I don't remember their Twitter handle. It's a series of numbers where I shout it out. But um, they found that pass rush pass rush win rate is very random, whereas pass block win rate is um, much more stable. Not super stable, but um, much more stable than pass rush win rate. So win rate. So there's that. So um, I think last time that we were on here, I was taught, we kind of talked about this, and I, I said that 
pass rusher is one where I'd like to see them really address it. But if you're kind of looking at it from that perspective, paying a lot of money for a pass rusher maybe doesn't make a lot of sense. Like I think Clark and, you know, if you can get Khalil Mack, go get Khalil Mack, that kind of stuff, that makes sense. But again, you know, talking about paying, you know, a significant amount of money for a Trey Flowers or trying to stack your line, you know, through free agency with a bunch of these pass rushing type guys, I don't know if that makes a lot of sense. And you can kind of see that in how the Patriots have um, gone about their business, right? I think that's one of the reasons why Trey Flowers has a good shot to to hit the market is because maybe the Patriots are already kind of in on this and they're not looking to spend a ton of money on pass rushers. Um, the other thing that the Patriots do that's really interesting in uh, Justice Mosqueda, um, you can find him on Twitter really easy, um, has been talking about this, about how the Patriots have taken a different tact to free agency than and, and roster building than basically the entire league in that they are giving out a bunch of kind of um, mid-range by mid-range I'm talking like maybe five to ten million um, that kind of lower end um, contracts that are lightly or not guaranteed to veterans and so they're kind of just stocking up on these guys very little guaranteed get them in camp have them compete keep the ones that are good and then um, have that kind of deeper veteran quality roster without, you know, like you're saying, Brian, going out and trying to build a team on a couple big, you know, free agent purchases. So um, interesting ideas there about how to both address, you know, where you should spend your money in, in, in free agency and how you should spend your, should your money in agency, kind of looking at how the Patriots do it. I'm curious if you guys think on the, the Patriots, like how many lessons do you really believe we can take from the Patriots? Like... I, I, I guess for me, it's like, I think there's only one Tom Brady. I know we had this, uh, this conversation a little bit before, um, but I mean, how much does Belichick, able, Belichick and Brady, like their unique abilities allow them to do unique roster building? You know, if, if, if the Seahawks took that approach, do you think that, that they'd get similar benefits? I honestly don't know. I don't I know think- either. I think Nathan hit on a really good point that Belichick has been really forward thinking in terms of roster building. And one of the things he's kind of found is a market inefficiency. Something the Seahawks can learn from because they've kind of missed when trying to do this is trading, swapping down in the draft and picking up veteran players. They've been really, really good at this. And they haven't been a great drafting team historically, which is interesting because that's like the lifeblood of your organization. But they got their left tackle, Trent Brown, in a deal like that where like they moved down like – 10 spots and they got like a stud left tackle for cheap. They got like Kyle Van Noy, one of their linebackers by doing that. They've, like that's how the Seahawks got Coleman a couple years back. And like that's a market inefficiency they've really exploited because they haven't drafted well. If you look at Belichick's drafts, they've been very inconsistent. They've missed on like a ton of wide receivers and they drafted a running back in the first round as who's probably their third best running back. And so something like that where like the Seahawks can kind of, the Seahawks did really find market inefficiencies early in their tenure. Now they've gotten a little behind the eight ball in that regard. And I think that more than having Brady and Belichick is what I would commend them in terms of adjusting for roster building. I think the Seahawks thought they found a market inefficiency in the first round pick trades. And I think that they were very wrong. <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're totally right. I think they, they thought, I think they thought they were figuring out a way to get first round talent. Um, that was proven 
and figuring out a way, so taking some risk out, de-risking a little bit, and then also not having to pay first round salaries um, for their rookies, which makes not a ton of sense since you're paying big money in contracts to people like Jimmy Graham and Percy Harvin. But yeah, I agree with you hundred percent there. Um, I mean, it I, wasn't crazy because you know, you're talking about first round talent, but there's a big difference between top 10 first round talent where the Seahawks haven't been in a long time and, you know, twenties first round talent. And so I think that they thought that they were doing that where it's like, look, a pick in the 20. And I think they've still, I think that they, operate this is why they trade back so much too right and this is something that's actually really benefited them so they're not wrong right these late first round picks they're first round picks but they're not all created equal and so they thought that they i I think they thought that they could trade a first round pick that was a low value first round pick and get a hey it's jimmy graham which you know sounded good and jimmy was good here and all that but you know for various reasons they they swung and miss and uh the cap stuff i think is uh tougher to to do than i think maybe they thought it was evan looks like someone just uh i just had a dirty sock under his nose just heard a weird comment about a former nfl player on the seahawks i like tight ends that catch catch like double digit touchdowns i'm weird like that i don't know Hopefully you're excited for Will Disley to play a full season. Yeah, he'll, he was on pace. Well, I guess he actually was on pace for a lot. So, yeah, I'm excited for Will Disley's, like, 20-some touchdown season. That'll be great. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. <laughs> you know, but uh, – so I had a couple of questions. Uh, I know I, I, I asked Jeff to lead, and then I'm just having all these questions. But but so so one thing is just a point. Pass rushers, I don't can't think of many free agent pass rushers that have changed teams and – been day one kind of free agent signings that have been good deals like Calais Campbell kind of comes to mind like he wasn't a good deal but at least he's been a great player yeah I think of guys like Olivier Vernon Olivier Vernon and like you know a lot of guys have just got a lot of money and just are not that good so I don't know if you guys have examples of of other top-notch free agent pass rushers that change teams that come to mind who was the dude the Packers signed, like, in the 90s? Mohamed. Oh. No, Reggie White. White. Come Reggie on, White. man. Reggie White. How could you forget Reggie White? I forgot his name, but how could you forget him? I don't know. That was a good point. I, I don't I think know what like I think. A good example for the Seahawks case would be, like, what the Broncos got from DeMarcus Ware. That's yeah. a good one. But that wasn't like top dollar, player. was it? No, that's what I'm saying. That's kind of what the Seahawks got to be looking for, like, an older player to compliment. They had Miller at the time. We have Clark. That's probably the Seahawks' best case scenario for like a free agent pass rusher. But yeah, there's so many examples of guys just like Grant Wistrom, Patrick Kearney. Patrick yeah. Kearney, I think worked out. He was yeah, an NFL Defensive Player year. of the Year or something, wasn't he? No, he had yeah, one well, he had a 14 sack year, but he was. Quickly. What's that? I think he had one good year and then tanked yeah. very quickly. Yeah, he yeah. did. Um, so my second question, and I don't know if anyone's going to know this, but like, so when does the, so the collective bargaining agreement ends when, like 2021, I think. Yeah. So there's two more seasons yes. before it's over. Yeah. Yes. Cause I was kind of curious, like if the Seahawks franchised, so the current agreement is you, you're franchised twice and then you go to free agency. Is there a chance that if they took a player into the new CBA, that coming out of that CBA, they changed that rule and, you know, a, a guy could continue to get franchised? Does that make sense? Or is two, it, or two. is it like, like, 
ruled by the current CBA and it doesn't matter what they change it to. Two things, a player can be tagged three times in a row, actually. It's just extremely cost prohibitive. Um, number two, Joel Corey, um, you know, NFL former NFL agent, is super in sync with a lot of executives, a lot of people who are negotiating on the CBA side on both sides, said the franchise tag isn't going anywhere in the next CBA. It is here to stay. So that kind of answers your question. Well, I wasn't suggesting it would go away. I was kind of wondering if maybe they'd change the rule that would make it possible for teams to just continue. Maybe it wouldn't be prohibitive the third year and they just keep franchising. Like, could they change the rules on the on players that have not yet hit free agency? Does that make sense? I think how players would be grandfathered in would be something that would have to be collectively bargained. Yeah. So I think it would depend. But I, I don't know. If you guys followed Richard Sherman on Twitter the other night, I don't know if you saw him. That's going to be an ugly negotiation. <laughs> I'm surprised that that he that Joel Corey is so confident that the tag's not going anywhere. Is that from a player perspective or a or an owner perspective? Uh, I think of both. They both want it. I'm surprised. Not in, as in both want it, but as in like owners hold so much power. There's no way that. The tag is leaving. I, and I'm just going off of his word, his credibility. But yeah, yeah I, I, I wonder. I wonder if that's smart from an owner perspective, though. With with quarterbacks now, uh, you know, almost using that as a weapon. I mean, it, it the Kirk Cousins thing, right? I mean, we've talked about Russ trying to repeat that and and stuff like that. So I wonder, you know, I think uh, you, Evan, you talked about this in your article, right? That if Russ gets franchised three times in a row, that works out to what, 40 million a year or 40 million APY or whatever. So that's not great, I think, if you're an owner. So if more quarterbacks start to go down this route, it's going to potentially inflate quarterback salaries, right? Yeah, doesn't it make sense to like try to have the players eat their young and like say that players should start trying to put limits on quarterback salaries so the money has to filter elsewhere. Um, you know, like, uh, it seems like there's there's such an inequality of where the money goes. And and uh, if the players really want more people to get it, they've got to s- figure out how to not have it concentrated in certain positions. Quarterback my, being my the primary. Is like, my theory is at some point this has to self-correct. Like, at some point, paying Matthew Stafford, you know, $45 million a year does not make sense, like relative to cap percentage. I I, I got I, I almost feel like at some point the market has to self-correct and NFL teams will eventually stop paying these insane quarterback salaries relative to cap percentage. You know, it's like nobody's forcing nobody's forcing the freaking Broncos to pay Brock Osweiler or the Texans to pay Brock Osweiler $19 million a year. Like, you know what I mean? Like, does it? Won't this self-correct to an extent? Sam Bradford just got $20 million to play for the Cardinals, right? I mean, like, it's it just should, a- but... <laughs> yeah, you like, the, the Kirk Cousins contract should make people think, right? Yeah, it, you would think, like, after a, many mistakes have been made, you would think, like, some teams would, you know, <laughs> learn from them. That's, but. that's one of the worst signings in a long time. Really, I don't know. We'll see next year. Because we're only – I mean, we're he was bad this year, but, like, so was the entire offense for, like, an entire year. Like, wasn't 
wasn't uh, they guaranteed his entire contract. No, I, I I agree that regardless, it's a bad contract. But didn't they get Gary Kubiak now? Is there? Um, I think so. Their, either their consultant or something like that for the offense. Um, yeah. I think that's such a better fit for the Vikings than uh, DiFilippo was. Like that just was like oil and water um, with with Zimmer's philosophy and. I'm kind of curious, like Kubiak, a lot of his stuff is takes pressure off the quarterback and, and might make cousins. I mean, Thielen had a career year. Um, anyway, I, I'm curious. I, I think to me, cousins is just, uh, I think he's a, an above average quarterback. I don't think he's that bad. I just yeah. think he's not worth all the money he got. I had another question for Nathan and it's a more it's a philosophical question because Nathan. I'm really very, scared right now. I don't know no, what's, no, no. what's coming. You're actually gonna like this. I'm commending you. Um, Nathan was very critical last year of the Seahawks' approach to free agency since they left themselves short on the comp pick scale. A year later, they're left with four picks only. Most of their free agents from last year, the guys were talking about cutting. Now, with a lot of players scheduled to hit the market again, you got Earl. You got Justin Coleman. You got the guards. Would you be trying to trend toward the compact thing again since they screwed it up last year, or do you think they're in the spot where they got to more think about winning now? It's a good question because you know, just talking about how the Patriots do things and signing you know some of those mid-level guys and letting them fight it out, but that does have the the comp pick implications. You know, I mean, Seattle right now. They've got four picks, and part of that is because they got no help on the comp picks. And, I mean, I don't know, I guess. It'll, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, last year was kind of a, a unique year for Seattle, I think, with so many guys going out. And so I think it was a particularly bad year for them to take the approach that they did. Um, this year, they're going to have to... Is Earl's a free agent, right? They're not cutting him. Yeah, Earl's um, agent. Frank's a free agent. KJ Wright yeah, probably leave keep him. KJ Wright. Those are the big three. KJ might get big money somewhere. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Earl's your big one, probably. And then maybe KJ, you know, we'll see what happens with Coleman, um, whether he ends up even leaving at all. So, you know, you're really only talking about, you know, one, maybe two decent comp picks. So, you know, I, this year, I think I'm much more comfortable with them taking the approach that they took last year, um, although less guarantees would be great. Um, I think it was a mistake last year, though. Evan, what about you? I was kind of interested, just off of Nathan's note real quick, I was kind of interested, interested to hear Jason's comments about Earl. Um, he thought Earl was going to end up in like the 10 – $10 million range. Whereas I, I would go much higher. I, I think he's going to try and set the market above Eric Berry at like $14 million a year. And in terms of the safety market, 10 and 14 is a big difference. So, um, you, you know, he obviously said that guarantees would be important for Earl concerning the recent injuries in the past couple of years. And that makes sense in everything. But if what Earl Thomas will settle for, you know, is $10 million a year. Why haven't the Seahawks signed him now? Like, why haven't they extended him now? To me, that it that would be such a deal for him. Uh, he's going to try to set it at 14, though, right? I don't think Earl's going to settle for 10 now. It's a question of what he settles for after he gets out there and sees the offers. Yeah, that's fair. And I and I agree with that. Um, in terms of KJ, 
I've been kind of shifting my thoughts on him. I actually think he could overperform. Um, I think he could get more money than we think. Why is that? I don't know. He he's he's you. I think you guys would be surprised to see how much respect he has around the league. I know he kind of lives under the shadows of Bobby Wagner, but that dude's been a stud for us, and I and I think other teams have recognized that, um, especially with his ability to to just sniff out defensive plays so quickly, so easily. He has an insane mind, the ability to like foreshadow plays before they happen. Um, Can I give you a hot take on KJ? Oh God, yes. I can absolutely see him signing with the Patriots. Ooh, yeah. He is, like, he is like exactly the kind of player Nathan was talking about. Veteran, older, not, you know, not hyped enough to where he's going to get top money, but they'll give him some medium money and he'll be great for them. Ah, it'd be classic Patriots fashion is what it would be. So would it hurt more for Earl to sign with the 49ers or the Rams? Rams. Rams. It would be weird to see him go on and win a ring with another team. I don't think the <laughs> Niners are. I think me and you disagree on this one, Brian, but I don't think the Niners are going to win a ring anytime soon. So. Yeah, well. Whereas the Rams will be winning one in just a few days, probably. Or they won't be. They'll be taking that out. <laughs> It would be hard to see Earl and Sherm, though, in San Francisco. I mean, it's not hard if they're winning two games a year. <laughs> yeah, but they they're going to be last year. They're going to be good next year. No, uh, they're not. Stop, yeah. stop pretending the Niners are going to be good anytime soon. They, uh, they don't, we don't even know that they have a franchise quarterback, and they paid him like $28 million a year. All right. I hope you're, you're not right. paying Nick Mullins $28 million. What are you talking about? <laughs> you're right. My apologies. I will say, though, we didn't talk much about the, the championship games, um, but I, re I really don't like Jared Goff. Like, I just, he drives me crazy. He, he's probably a fine guy, but I just don't like him, and I cheer against him like super hard. And he looked so bad initially, and he he made throw after throw. He outplayed Drew Brees in that game. Now, I, I don't think it was as simple as that. I think that Sean McVay outcoached um, Sean Payton, or at least uh, uh, all the different coordinators. I think Wade Phillips had a better plan for, for Sean Payton than, than uh, Dennis Allen did for, for Sean McVay. But uh, Goff looked solid. Um, and he stepped up in a tough situation. See, I thought McVay had quietly a bad game. Hmm. The big punt call was great, but if, this, if the Saints win on that pass interference, the whole storyline would have been that McVay didn't go for it on fourth and goal and that they, they ran on third and 15. It was very Schottenheimer-esque. And I thought Peyton, and then once McVay screwed up, Peyton screwed up, but he didn't run the ball on first down, that throw, and they could have ran the ball three times in a row, and he kept trying to pass it. And they're situa that's the situation where Nathan and Ben would say you're supposed to run. And it was just interesting to see the, like, the, the whole storyline change on McVay because he was getting roasted on Twitter. And then they that's win the fair. game, and all of a sudden, he was a boy genius. But, but Goff, I mean, Goff definitely was – he made a lot of big throws. And it's interesting – my read of that Sean Payton call where where they passed on first down, 
that was a that was a I have Drew Brees, maybe the best quarterback or one of the best quarterbacks to ever play. He believes there's a play here. We have a play call we we have high confidence in. And Drew Brees dropped back, had a clear pocket, a wide open player, and he threw it into the ground. Like, I don't think you can put that on the coach. Like you could say, hey, that's the risky run. And so maybe the the risk reward wasn't right, but the play call was good. It was run well by every player but the quarterback. And if he makes that play, they probably win the game. Like, uh, it's tough being a coach. It's, yeah, I don't know. Drew Brees quietly had a bad game. He did. Yeah, no one's talking about that. All right, Jeff. I think uh, I think we're going to have to wrap it here. That was, uh, that was a lot of good stuff. Um, I think there was even more in Evan's article that we could get into. Um, I think one of the things we're going to talk about next time, hopefully, uh, Jeff has signed up for, and we're, we're publicly committing him to, we're going to try to do some collaborative articles uh, about some of uh, our top top free agents that we're interested in, um, you know, uh, across the Hawk Blogger crew, and um, some other stuff like that coming up. And so we'll be back in two weeks. Uh, that will be the week, two weeks after the Super Bowl. Will it be around when free agent? Oh, I guess we'll be getting close to like franchise tag yeah the combine yeah. is the end of february yeah. free agency begins like the second week of march so i think the first article we're going to come out with is like things we want to see the seahawks change i imagine we'll all have very unique perspectives on that just the all the debate we've had about the passing running the Pete carroll debate i think the four of us all come at football very differently. So I think that's a very interesting article to lead off with. And then we'll get more into the free agency targets once we get a little closer and see the franchise tag players come off. So yeah, Brian's right. Those should be fun and keep your eye on those, especially the first one coming out. That'll be a really good one. Cause it's just, you can tell from our show how unique the four of us are in terms of the way we view the game and the way we view food. But, uh, other than that, uh, hey, uh, if you haven't already, please make sure you click subscribe. Um, the, the show's growing. The channel's growing. It's doing well. Um, follow Evan at Evan on HB on Twitter. Jeff uh, at Real Jeff Simmons on Twitter. Nathan at NathanE11. Uh, I am at HawkBlogger, as always. And uh, if you haven't, um, try to sign up for Patreon. Uh, become a HawkBlogger patron. Uh, HawkBlogger.com, uh, like Patreon.com slash HawkBlogger. Um, you know, five bucks and you get uh, a month and you get into the private Facebook group and, and, uh, can talk more there. So lots of good stuff going on and it all goes to charity. So, uh, folks, thank you for tuning in and, uh, have a great night. Go Hawks.